Welcome back. Today we are going to be discussing the book Jot by Mary Rose Barrington. Can you hold that up, Carolyn? And can you read the subtitle for that one? When Things Disappear and Come Back or Relocate and Why It Really Happens. So this book um, is written by this lady, Mary Rose Barrington, who's a psychical researcher. Um, you know what that means if you haven't heard about that. That's what the, there's still a society for psychical research, mm -hmm. and it started like in the 1800s um, as a, today they call it parapsychology, but um, it was basically, you know, investigating mediums and after afterlife phenomena and... Um, yeah, it started roughly, I believe, in the 1880s, and it included some of the leading intellectuals of the day. I think uh, one of the Huxley brothers was in there, William James was in there, mm -hmm. a lot of really respected scientists. Um, they yeah, and the big philosopher, I can't remember his name, but a British philosopher was involved. Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, like Frederick M. Myers. He, he wasn't actually a scientist, he was a classicist, but he ended up writing uh, and collaborating on some of the biggest kind of volumes of the time, like he, his magnum opus was called uh, The Human Personality, subtitle like, and it's life after death or something. But it was mainly, because um, that was his main goal, that was the goal of a lot of these guys originally was to to see if there was any evidence for life after death. But in the, in the pursuit of that goal, the things that they studied were actually... Um, actually relevant for wider fields like psychology in general, like William James mm -hmm. had said of this book, uh, uh, The Human Personality by Myers, that it basically contained something like um, the whole of our subject matter. So basically like uh, everything that is relevant to psychology, because mm -hmm. he he, Myers would deal with all kinds of actual psychological phenomena that, that um, were kind of cutting edge at the time or that you know, psychology as a new science hadn't really gotten into. So things like the unconscious, unconscious processes, dissociation, automatisms, like all kinds of weird far out there stuff that's pretty mainstream nowadays, but that, um, that actually had a, an application in the world of like psychical research. Well, not only that, I think they were trying to rescue a lot of these phenomena from the sphere of religion not that religion didn't have something to say for it, but it was a way of trying to place it on a footing of something as worthy of scientific inquiry. Mm -hmm. um, also, at the time, they were sort of in combat with the Darwinists, who, you know, for, let's see, 1850-ish to 1880-ish, so had for 20 years been making gains with this completely materialist point of view, and so this was their way of trying to counter them on the same scientific ground, so to speak, you know. Yeah, but the the problem back then is the same as today is that it, they've always been a minority and like, you know, fighting against the mainstream and viewed as like crackpots. But um, like one of the things you, you learn when you actually start reading the like the papers and the books that these guys have published, because they're all like, for, for the most part, they're all respectable scientists, aside from the fact that they're interested in parapsychology yeah. and that they actually like the a lot of their protocols that they've developed, um, like especially since um, Ryan started like the you know parapsychology as a science you know doing lab studies essentially setting up setting up experiments that way like the the methodologies that they developed um have actually influenced the way mainstream psychologists you know make studies and the like they they, they were always trying to go for like double blind triple blind studies as right. as as rigorous as possible and unlike mainstream psychologists, the parapsychologists actually publish their bad results. Mm -hmm. So they, they publish everything, they, they share everything. Like in psychology, it's the you know, publish or perish mm -hmm. um, thing where you, they, they only publish their good results and they, 
They'll massage their results as much as possible in order to get the good results. Parapsychologists just put it all out there because, uh, well, they they're because they're held to a higher standard and they hold themselves to a higher standard because they know that they're trying to demonstrate something that is seen as just you know crackpot nonsense. Yeah. Well, Mary Rose Barrington is is a very interesting addition to this group. She was part of it quite early on. She was an I believe an Oxford graduate um, as a lawyer. So all of her background is, is very much about evidence and proving evidence and, or discrediting evidence, and she makes her a really meticulous researcher. And uh, she has been involved with him for a lifelong thing. And the, the, the hilarious thing about this book is that she is 92 and just published this. So this has been a lifelong pursuit. And I was reading it. Uh, you can tell her education had been kind of 19th century. She's very very literary in her presentation, very meticulous in the way that the Society for Psychical Research was. And for a little while, I thought I was reading something that was maybe republished from the 40s until I ran into her reference to the Hadron Collider. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And I looked her up on Wikipedia, and she is still kicking. <laughs> yep. And she, she's got that, uh, she's British, so she's got that kind of uh, dry British humor there too, which is which is quite fun to read. But to get into what the book is actually about, like JOT, J-O-T-T, um, is an acronym for just just uh, just one of those things. So the idea being that everyone's had the experience of, you know, um, tr looking for their car keys or they're holding something and they drop it, you know, into the sofa or next to the sofa, and then you can't find it. Right, you're looking for it, and most of the time, you know, it just falls behind in a, in a weird spot, you know, behind one of the legs on your couch or something. And, mm -hmm. and you, you're looking for, for minutes, sometimes days, and then, then you find it there. Right. And so oftentimes it's just one of those things, right? You just write, write it off. And most, most of the time, probably when something like that happens, it is just because it's fallen in an out of the way place. Mm -hmm. But the, the examples that she's using here are, um, are far more um, intriguing than just that because because it's one of those things where you just kind of write it off because you drop something and sometimes you actually lose it. So sometimes you'll drop something and you, and you can't find it and you say, oh, well, you know, I guess it just went somewhere and I just couldn't find it, right? Because it's a cluttered room. Um, it would take too long to, 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 to actually find. You're looking for it and you just happen to not be able to find it. But the, the premise of the book is that sometimes there's more to it than that. Sometimes it isn't that simple. And um, and she would argue that based on the evidence, based on the case studies that, well, based on personal experience and the case studies, which she lists like, you know, a couple hundred of them, I think. 97. Okay, so almost 100. Yeah. That, um, that sometimes objects actually do disappear. Like they actually, something strange happens to them. Kind of like, you know, a missing 411, but for your keys or for your paint paintbrush. Right. <clears throat> and... Um, so some of the some of the examples that she gives are pretty remarkable, and you know, like you said, she's um, she knows what she's doing. She's pretty serious, so she's not um, she's not just taking little anecdotes here and there. These are these are cases that were often um, often experienced by researchers themselves. Mm -hmm. um, you know, people that you that would generally be trustworthy, um, and whose cases were investigated. And you know, she she'd interview them and get right. as many details as possible and talk to as many people as possible. And she was very meticulous about her methodology and probably for everyone she included in the book, she probably dropped 20 for lack of proper documentation. Mm -hmm. So, well, yeah. just to just maybe just to give one example, like she, there are several that are 
just really good, really interesting stories. I mean, usually I don't like reading um, books like this with just a long series of case studies. I kind of find it boring and repetitive. Um, but these were all of them were interesting. I, I it was quite a page turn to reading this one. So just one example. This was a um, a painter who was giving a painting lesson. So I, I guess you know painting landscapes or something like that. So he had this um, this shop front that was not being used, and so he used it as a studio. So a big wide open space with like linoleum, I think. Mm -hmm. And um, they had their two easels set up in the middle of the room. And he was demonstrating this one technique to his student um, using like, I think what he called like a, an inch thick paintbrush. So a substantial brush. And so he was, you know, painting and then accidentally dropped it. And he, he heard it hit the ground. And then he looked for it, or he look, looks down and looks for it, can't find it anywhere. It's not, you know, it should be, it's just, it's just wide open space. There's nothing else on the floor. It's a totally empty building except for the chairs and these two easels and these two people in the room. And so he and his, and his student both get on, you know, get on, on their knees. They're looking all over. They think, oh, well, maybe it rolled over to the side of the room. Nope. Well, it, the, the brush couldn't have rolled anyways. And there was no sound of it rolling. Like it, sh it's a, it should have been an obvious thing. You drop something that substantial, it should be somewhere. But it was, it was nowhere. They never found it. Well, what was also remarkable was the fact that neither of them mentioned any kind of paint being splashed on mm. the floor. Mm -hmm. There was no evidence that this paint-filled, huge brush had ever made it to the floor other than the sound. Right. So just, just to give an idea of the kind of, thing, kind of things that were going on. But um, in these number of cases, she breaks them down into um, several different types. She calls them walkabouts, turnups, comebacks, flyaways, windfalls, and trade-ins. So I'll just give a brief outline of what these things mean. So a walkabout is something that was in a certain place and then disappears and shows up in a different place. So um, this might be like you you have your keys on your on the you know on a, a little hook on the wall, and then they disappear and then they show up like in your your storage trunk in your closet, you know, sitting on top a bunch of papers that you'd left there and that you haven't looked at for years, something like that. A turn up is something that um, shows up at a place where it should be, but that you don't really have any memory of, uh, you, like you haven't seen it disappear from that spot, essentially. So something that you, you might have noticed has been missing, like when you're looking for like your wallet that you're pretty sure you left somewhere, and you look at the spot and it's not there, and then it shows up in that spot later on. But you never actually had any evidence that it disappeared from that exact spot. You know, it just you're you're kind of uncertain about where it was in the first place, but then it shows up where it should be. Um, a comeback is something that um, shows up. Well, exactly what it says. It disappears from one spot and then comes back to that place. That actually reminded me of the missing four one one cases a lot too, where. Um, you know, you look for something, look for a person in a, in a certain place. Um, you have, well, for those not familiar with Missing 411, that's uh, David Politis's work researching um, missing persons, often who have disappeared in, um, like, national parks, but uh, several, like, clustered areas in the United States and elsewhere. But um, the, the cases all seem to follow a pattern of, a, you know, a, a person disappearing seemingly out of nowhere. And then oftentimes they'll get search parties out, including getting the canine units to, um, to search areas, and you get people like looking for these people and searching places sometimes multiple times and then they'll find the body there in a place that they know that they've searched that they've documented that they've searched that just uh, kind of reminded me of that 
Um, the next one is a flyaway, something that just disappears and never comes back. And then a windfall, this is a, um, an object that comes from a, an unknown object, an unfamiliar object that, object that just shows up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, something that you're not familiar with, something that's not yours that um, you somehow get. And there's one interesting um, windfall case that she describes of a lady who was like out in her garden, like, like dozing off. The in, in the country. In the country. Far away. Yeah, like the garden was at the back of the house, not visible from the street. It was kind of like an isolated area. And she, she wakes up and there's a letter, like a, you know, a postmarked letter, as if the male person had delivered it and put it on her lap. Um, but it wasn't addressed to her place, you know, so she thinks, well, that's kind of weird. Um, she and her husband, like, look at it and then open it up. And it was a, like a letter from a librarian to some person living in, like, a different county um, requesting that they return the books that they've had, had out, for, you know, that they, that they should have returned a month ago or something like that. And that was a really weird one because then they, they research this. They call the librarian and um, send the letter back. And then... The I think it was the husband um, requested wanted wanted a, like evidence for it again like wanted a copy of the letter so asked the librarian to to photocopy the letter, and um, so the librarian's like okay yeah sure I'll do that, faxes the letter but it's a, a different letter it's a wrong letter it's the, a letter that like sequentially would have come after this letter reminding this person about the previous letter that they hadn't received and hadn't responded to, saying okay we really need those books back, so they call up call up again and say well. Where's the 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 real letter? Because this is a uh, this isn't the one, and the letter's gone. The letter had disappeared from this librarian's office. They could he, the librarian couldn't find it in their you know in their file cabinet. They couldn't find the carbon copy of the letter. It had just vanished. And the envelope. And the envelope. So there there are just uh, you know just numerous case case after case of th these kinds of weird things happening. And um, I think you know once you once you read them, you'll, I think un unless you Maybe for someone who isn't like open to the to the even the idea of anything parapsychological or paranormal that might come across, they 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 they'll just dismiss it out of hand. Oh, well, it must have been something. But when you read these cases, it's like a lot of them. They're uh, like assuming that these that these events occurred as described. There's no normal explanation for them. Well, one of one of my favorite windfalls is a gentleman who was uh, he had a scooter. He was going somewhere, and uh, apparently there was something about this particular mm. engine that the spark plugs will get gummed up. He's got a spare when the thing conks out, so he changes out the spark plug, puts a new one in, goes down the road. I think he was even heading to his mechanic, and the second one gums up, I think from the oil, and now, like, he's stuck. He's really in trouble because he's on a country road. He's heading to his mechanic. And for some reason, he starts to look around, and he spots something white in the grass, and it is a brand-new exact spark plug mm -hmm. that he needs to get his machine going, and he gets all the way to the mechanic with no trouble. Yeah, and, like, the, <laughs> and like uh, the weird, a couple of the weird things about that were, there, were that, that, spark club, that spark plug was found right where he stopped the, the motorcycle. So he, you know, it breaks down, he gets off, he looks over, and there's the spark plug. And it was a very specific kind of spark plug, too. It's not like a standard one that, you know, mm -hmm. someone would just, you know, happen to have dropped somewhere. This was a precise, you know, the precise make and model for his, uh, you know, his scooter or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, 
So there's a little bit of sigh in there too. Why would he stop or why would the machine break down right there next to the exact thing he needed? Mm -hmm. Like, really? <laughs> Another one uh, that just came to mind was uh, um, this, I think it was a man who, I can't remember, well, a person lost their keys. And so the, the keys disappear and then the keys reappear, but it was... Oh, maybe you maybe you remember this one better than yeah. I did. Yeah, he they disappeared, and he goes, "Uh, screw it." So he goes and has yeah. four more made. So new keys, very specific. There was a maker's mark on them for some reason. Some keys have have codes on them. Distributes them all to his family, puts the new key on the ring, hangs it back up because these are seem to be very methodical people. The next time they took the key ring down, there was the new key and the old key. And the thing that makes this one really freaky is that the old key had a mark. Uh, oh, the key looked brand new. The returned key did not show any signs of wear, scratches. You know how keys get kind of beat up after a while. The shop that the original key had been made in had been closed for two years. Mm -hmm. So somehow... <laughs> right, so he calls up. He, I think, he even takes it to the to this shop where they, they make keys, and they say, "Oh yeah, well, well, the the new shop, like where they'd moved to," and the, the, they look and they say, "Well, yeah, that looks like the keys that we made, but like, but that's not our name anymore. That's not our address because this was stamped on the key, and like, uh, and those models, like that that key type, we haven't used, you know, for two years or something. Mm -hmm. So the the keys were replaced, but it was with a new version of the old key. It was as if someone, you know. Someone was trying to like create a forgery for these old keys, like someone had <laughs> stolen them and tried to to you know to forge to make it look as if they were the old keys, but they were new, and they were they were anachronistic in you know in essence. So, oh, and then then, then there's the lady on on her vacation with her family in Africa somewhere, and uh, she's got two corsets that she wears, and uh, every night, well, she'd alternate, so she'd wear one corset for one day. Take it off, clean it, and wear the, and wear the next one the next day, and you know alternate back and forth. And she'd leave the the corset on the chair next to her bed. Then one morning she wakes up and her corset isn't there. So she looks all over the place for it, can't find it. No, none of her family can find it. She gets home after the vacation, and there it is in her closet, all tied up. Mm. You know, um, and I don't wear a corset, but uh, <laughs> but for for anyone who has the like, and for this lady in particular. She never would leave it tied up. It's like you tie it up once it's on you because right. it's a hassle. And so it was just all tied up in her closet. There are a couple of cases like that of people, you know, miss, uh, losing something on on vacation and then finding it in their home. Like there was one, I think it was a uh, like a favorite alarm clock. It was just a cheap alarm clock, but it was handy. It worked. It did the job. And it, so there was some kind of like sentimental value attached to this particular alarm clock. I'm pretty sure this was the one that was found, you know, so that missing on vacation again then they come home and they find it like in the middle of the floor in like the the entryway of, of their house mm -hmm. just sitting in the middle of the floor yeah. so these oftentimes these these objects like they disappear and then the way she describes it and the way that people that find them describe it is that they're they're found in an in a like conspicuously obvious place like it's right there to grab your attention so it's like right in the middle of the floor where obviously they'd you know, you might have walked 10 minutes before. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you open a chest of, uh, you know, a storage chest where you keep all your knickknacks and stuff and old papers, and, like, this watch that you've been looking for 
and that you've looked in the in the chest for is just sitting precisely like right in the middle on top of like all these other things like in the, you know the first example I gave it's like it's like the, um, the way she describes it, it's almost like there's some kind of like you know joker or trickster that's like playing a trick on you it's like okay well here you go here here it is like um this <laughs> you, might you, you've you suffered out. enough here you go right <laughs> and that this is you know this if this has been since forever then this is where you get your stories of mischievous fairies and you know, not annoying the brownies because they will steal your favorite milk churn or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, but yeah, but you know, and people, if they're not alert, uh, one, one thing that, that she mentioned in passing is that, and, and she qualified it is that this seems to happen more to people who are paying attention. So, um, psychical researchers, you know, she gives a lot of examples from folks who, who were part of her, uh, research group. But then you could make the argument that people aren't paying attention when it happens. They write it off. They never think about it. Or, you know, so it might be a very pervasive per phenomenon, but only certain people are alert to it. Or does it happen more to them because they are alert to it? You, know, yeah. you can go round and round about that. Well, there's actually one, I, I forgot to describe the last one, a trade-in. So this is where an odd, one of your, you know, items of one of your personal possessions disappears. And then... It, you find it again, but it's not your personal item. It's a, it's a, like a facsimile uh, <laughs> of your item. It's a slightly different model than mm -hmm. your item. So there were a couple examples of those, like another alarm clock one where a different alarm clock showed up. Um, you know, um, I can't remember. Um, like, you know, you, you lose one earring and then another earring shows up, but it doesn't match the first one or something like that. Yeah. Um, so those are the weirdest ones. But... Um, yeah, no, I, that, that's it for examples. But um, maybe, or maybe just one more example. When she gets into, because she, she, the first couple chapters are just all the case studies, you know, arranged by type, you know, by those six categories that she, that she lumps them into. And then she gives the background, because this is all leading up to kind of her, her big theory for why this happens. And her big theory ends up being a really big theory, like not just about, um, about jots or jottles, but about kind of everything. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of like her explanation for this phenomenon is basically her ex explanation for reality, essentially. Like it's all-encompassing. And so to get there um, as relevant data to explain this phenomenon, she gets into all of the, um, all of the basically all of the parapsycholo parapsychological research. So um, you can lump it into two categories, you know, ESP and PK, um, and then subcategories from there. But... Um, in the description um, of, well, in the in that extra, uh, in that section where she describes all this other research, she references back a couple of these cases. One being a postage stamp that um, that someone was holding, holding it in their fingers, and this person felt the postage stamp dematerialize. So it just felt it like disappearing from within, you know, between his fingers, mm -hmm. and that seems to that seems to be something well that seems to be what what has happened in all these cases is that when these objects disappear they actually dematerialize it's not that they like float up and and move around yeah. um like like you'll find in like the poltergeist movie or something like that yeah. or even real pol poltergeist cases we'll get into that in a second but something that just pops out of existence it just it literally just disappears and then when it appears like um I don't think there are any examples, you know, aside from the people that have felt the object disappear, there aren't very many examples of people who have seen 
the object actually disappear and then reappear. That almost seems to be a characteristic, is that when your attention is momentarily withdrawn, mm -hmm. it, it will pop back into our existence. Mm -hmm. But um, to, to like the, <clears throat> the research and the examples she gives to kind of give the, the context and the background to, to fit this into her theory, um, one of those examples is like, like I said, poltergeist cases. So these would be cases where there are accounts of um, objects seemingly moving of their own accord, you know, floating through the air. Mm -hmm. And she gives some, some pretty famous and well-documented examples of poltergeist cases of, um, um, and apparently this is a, a pretty common phenomenon in poltergeist cases, is like um, flying stones. So there are a couple examples of houses being just, just bombarded with rocks that are being thrown at the house. So the people inside the house will, will hear, hear um, you know, rocks being thrown against their windows and, and, and walls from outside. And so initially, um, some of these cases, you know, the, the assumption was that there were kids throwing rocks um, because the rocks are there. Like you can see the rocks that were thrown, but no one's ever found. And then, then there, was, uh, there, was, there are some, witness, some witnesses, I think, including the people that experienced these phenomena, that actually saw, looking from outside, saw the rocks like seemingly materializing out of nowhere and right. then shooting at the house. So if you were look, to look at it, you know, two feet away from the house, you'd see a rock appear and just shoot out, mm -hmm. you know, against, uh, towards the house and against the, the window or the house. Well, wasn't there, there also a case, I'm not sure it's related to, the, to that particular one, of um, these two kids who were getting pelted with rocks and you would see the stones falling around them but they were never hurt. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they didn't become solid within, I don't know, the field of, of these two kids. And when they went inside the house, the stones continued to fall on them, mm -hmm. but they never got hurt from them. And so it's like they were materializing, but they weren't hard enough to hurt them. Yeah, they, it's like they weren't fully materialized. I think that's the right. way she describes it. Right. So, um, so by... The, bringing all this stuff up she kind of like her theory for because this is like what she'd call like a paranormal event or what you know people would call a paranormal event mm -hmm. and you know therefore you've got to look at all these paranormal phenomena the, at the context of all these other paranormal paranormal phenomena in order to to be able to you basically in order to explain one you have to account for all of them essentially mm -hmm. um at least that's kind of the the direction she goes in so um so at the end maybe can you Give me the copy of that book there. I'm going to just read a couple things from the from the end. First, like when she, so when she finally gets to her her theory, she points out that it basically revolves around one central point, she says, and that is probability. So she writes um, about the ruling principles. So the principle that probability is inherent in the world means that means that in default mode, the most probable event will always occur. The most, probable, the most probable event in our perceived reality is determined by another default mode, the causal directive, which requires the, uh, which requires the most probable sequence of events to be consistent with causality, so that every event follows pre preceding events in a coherent sequence. So she's kind of laying out that, uh, like, some grand, like, some first principles on the nature of reality, and these actually are... Um, have a lot in common with process philosophy, you know, Whitehead's philosophy. He basically called, I can't remember what he called, um, his word for the causal directive was, but it was basically the, 
um, the part of like the the process um, that would apply to everything from you know some subatomic particles up to um, you know what we can perceive like um, like humans minds um, your your essence your individuality which is self reproduction and that this accounts for the stability of the world is that the uh, an inherent part of the process of reality is that the the thing in itself reproduces what it was just previously so like in a in a quantum system you know a particle will um, in its quantum evolution from one state to another state, there will be a a reproduction of that previous state. Like that is the previous state is the um, like the benchmark or like the starting point for the the evolution to the new state. It's not like um, something completely changes from one second from one from one instant to the next. There is a continuity and it is a reproduction of what has happened in the past. Mm-hmm. And that reproduction is basically what accounts for the, not only the stability of the universe and the, the coherence of the universe, but the, you know, it's the reason things, um, it, it is the similarity that um, underlies any change in a system. Like it's like, that's why you can recognize yourself from one day to the next. That's why, you know, mm-hmm. one apple that you eat is the same apple that you were eating, you know, a split second before. It's like there, there needs, there is some principle in the universe in like the very basic causality of the universe that preserves the, the past within the present. Um, and so the present contains the, the past within it. And um, on top of that, though, is, the, is the, the introduction of novelty, which, you know, Whitehead, for Whitehead, that was like one of the most important things to, to explain, to account for, is the, the emergence of novelty. Because in a, just in a deterministic world, um, of you know a billiard ball, a billiard ball world of you know strict determinism, nothing new can enter into it because everything is just operating on the all there is is stability and reproduction of the past. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be an element that brings in something new, and um, <clears throat> the the place to look for that I think um, would be in probability. It's because things don't just reproduce themselves; they reproduce themselves, but there's a there's a there, there's like a, a, a branching, a, um, like a tree, a, like a series of branches of potential futures, and each future will have a, a probability. Mm-hmm. So again, in quantum mechanics, it's like there's the, the probability, um, um, there's a probability like distribution of possible states and you know positions or whatever of, of like an electron or something, and it will probably find itself in this position, but there's a lesser probability it'll find it in that position. And this has all been determined by, you know, experiment where they've, you know, looked, you know, looked at these things and, fa- and like calculated the probabilities. Oh, well, based on all of these, um, all these observations that we've made, here are the probabilities of, of positions for, for this electron in this particular, you know, system. Mm-hmm. And that will, that is what, um, kind of allows for the introduction of novelty, I think, because if everything's probabilistic, well, there's a, sm- a very small chance that something new will happen, you know, something out of the ordinary. And this uh, reminded me of something that, I um, can't remember his first name, his uh, last name's Gelman. He's, I think he's the guy that discovered the quark, a uh, quantum physicist. And in his book, I think it was in his, one of his books, he described how as an undergraduate, his, uh, like his professor had got him to calculate the probability that um, an object, like a macroscopic object, like a chair or a person or a dog, would um, instantaneously like jump, or not not jump, but just appear one foot above, you know, where it should have been. So you just automatically find yourself one foot in the air, and then you fall back down again. And the probability was something like one over ten to the power of sixty. Mm-hmm. 
which is um, I haven't done the I haven't done the math, but that's something that's actually pretty close to the the probability that uh, Douglas Axe gave for finding <clears throat> uh, a functional protein, you know, randomly. Um, I think that was like one in ten to the seventy, which is actually much much more um, like you know exponentially more difficult. Mm -hmm. But well, even that in itself is pretty interesting. That uh, t you know the probability of of randomly finding like I think it was like 150 amino acid um, um, protein sequence is vastly more improbable than you know finding yourself a foot in the air, um, you know from one second to the next. But because um, apparently I guess that I guess using the you know the Schrodinger equation, I think that's the one that they use. That um, that can happen. That's part of the the probability. The probability is inherent in the, uh, in these quantum processes. That um, you know an electron can conceivably, though very improbably, find itself at some other part in the universe. Could be a foot away. Could be um, like uh, a light year away. But uh, and the further away, presumably, the more unlikely it is. But there's still a chance, right? It's like, 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 yes. uh, like Dumb and Dumber. It's like might be a one in a million chance, or a one in you know, you know, the trillion, 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 whatever you know. To but the it X could degree. happen. But it could happen. But there's a chance. So, um, so she actually talks about quantum physics. You know, she's not a quantum physicist, and just you know, I, I myself, like I said in the previous show, I don't like talking about quantum physics because I know I'm not. You know, I don't know enough about it to be able to talk about it. And that's what I think. That's what most people are. So. Most people should just probably shut up when it comes to quantum mechanics because they don't really know what they're talking about, uh, myself included. But sh she also gets into that, of course, because most people, you know, dealing you can't you can't not talk about it. I guess when you're talking about something like this, so <laughs> she does give a nod to that. But yeah, she figures actually her riposte to that was um, I will talk about quantum physics as expressed to me through television programs and whatever as scientists talk to me, having not re researched my field, and mm -hmm. consider it. Even. <laughs> mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the idea here could be just like even just um, you know if Gelman is is correct and if if that's a, a correct interpretation of quantum physics that it, it, there is at least a chance that an object can just reappear um, spatially displaced from where it was previously, mm -hmm. even if it's a tiny probability like that. If it's possible, then that act, that can it might be able to account for these phenomena at least it, that it, it it creates the possibility that that is possible well, the possibility that that's possible because um it allows it, it allows for it it's uh, at least it, it seems to be something that might conceivably happen in the universe as we know it as it's structured and so um it's just very improbable and um if the universe was left to itself mm-hmm Right. So this is where I can't remember if she actually um, mentions it in this last chapter, but it's relevant to the previous chapter. So um, this is where I'm going with this. In in the examples she gives of um, like I think it's she calls it like method methodological experimentation of like psychokinesis, for example. These are the tests that um, parapsychologists do. Using um, like random number generate random number generators and things like that, where um, where it seems like one interpretation of all of those results is that it seems that it seems that people like minds people with minds um, are able to somehow mess with the probabilities of things. So like using these random number generators, for instance, they, the, some of the tests that they do should give results that converge on like 
you know, heads or tails, essentially, you know, flipping a coin, but in this case, a digital coin. But when they do these tests, they find that the, you know, it should, it, like, you know, when, you, when you're first doing tests, you might get three heads and one tail, right? So it's like, it's, 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 uh, it's not close to 50. But the, the more trials that you do, the closer the results converge on 50-50. Mm -hmm. But in the PK experiments that they do, they find that um, even after, like, especially after, like, multiple, multiple results, like thousands and thousands of trials, you might get, like, 51%. Um, so the, the probabilities have actually been shifted. They're getting more heads when they should be, more heads when they, sh they should be getting more even heads and tails. Um, that's just a, a, basically like a simple description of what, like what the kind of, of kind of the math of what they're doing, um, and then you, if you look at even something like um, like genetics, like uh, like protein sequences or you know the amino acids that make them up, like extremely improbable sequences of um, of code essentially, or just um, if you, uh, okay, well. So we've got, just keep that in mind, like amino acids making up proteins. There's a similar, similar phenomenon in, um, that we utilize every day in just writing or, um, or computer code. Because every time you write a paragraph or you know, a, a computer code, you know, a, a stretch of computer code, you're actually um, embedding like information in whatever substrate you're using that is vastly improbable. If you just look at um, if if you if you look at the letters or the amino acids or like the 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 characters that you're typing when you're typing some com some computer code, the sequence that you end up with is vastly improbable, um, and you can approach um, improbabilities you know ranging or uh, you can approach improbabilities comparable to those of the the you know the object jumping a foot in the air mm -hmm. or the you know the 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 150 amino, amino acid sequence um you know basically hitting that bullseye every bullseye is a vastly improbable event when you compare it to um just randomness just uh, whatever randomness is but just an un, an unguided process an un, mm -hmm. unintelligently guided process mm -hmm. so again the, like with the example of typing it's like you put a, a monkey or just a random if you could devise a machine that would type randomly you will not get um, anything that makes sense. You'll you'll get just a you know uh, the the you'll get a random sequence of of letters. You won't get Shakespeare, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, to use the cliche. But um, but when you mathematically analyze a text um, in comparison with that that you know ideal random process, the text you know your meaningful text is you know extremely improbable. That seems to be what consciousness does: is that it it it's a it's an improbability. What's the Hitchhiker's Guide? The improbability uh, engine. Um, oh, in the machine, uh, you know, in the in the the ship that um, Beeblebrox or whatever his name is steals. It's an improbability the in, drive. The improbability drive. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Our consciousness is uh, is inherently an improbability drive because it is constantly doing things that are vastly improbable. Mm -hmm. Because simply for the reason that we're we're choosing it, like that is the the nature of of uh, creativity of mind of just well arguably like uh barrington might say of just the universe itself this is built into the universe this kind of process so we have these things going on in the world that are kind of following that principle of what does she call it causal directiveness or whatever the self-reproduction of just of the stability but every once in a while it's like things kind of go haywire a bit mm -hmm. it's like the instead of following the most probable event we followed like one of the least probable events and um, 
And, and she would argue this isn't an accident. It's not like this is just, she's not arguing that this is just something about the universe. Like every once in a while, there's just like a cosmic hiccup and you know, your, your pen forgets where it should have been and just appears everywhere. Because one of the features of, of these jot cases is that the objects disappear as objects, as we conceive of them. Yes. Because, like, when... Are... They're, they're, well, I was going to say, for starters, she, she does <clears throat> head off in the direction of trying to find an underlying motive for that, the idea that, that these, I, these events are not random on some, <clears throat> some level, the loss of the pen, the return of the pen, the whatever. Um, she never quite goes there, but this this idea of of consciousness being involved. Um, let me know if, if I'm heading off in the mm -hmm. same direction as you. Is that the, the the appearances and disappearances are what I call units of conception? Mm -hmm. And she gives the example. This one was priceless. This. Uh, Guy had a gas stove, and he kept the matches to light this gas stove, so I guess it was a really old gas stove, in a particular box next to his stove. Well, just let me, let me add okay. a detail there. Okay. He had two boxes of matches, right? He had the box of matches, and he had the box where he put the... Maybe this is a different case, but uh, the, the one I remember is that he had a, a, one matchbox with the matches, another matchbox with the used matches that he'd put them in. Okay. Right? Yeah, I forgot about that. <clears throat> yeah, okay. Anyway... He's got that. And, uh, and there was something in, unusual about this box. It wasn't like just the box the matches came in. It was the box he kept the matches in. So I was picturing some kind of old silver box or something. So he goes to light his stove one day, which he does every day. And the box, he reaches for the box. It is not there. So he gets all annoyed. And he uh, goes and finds another you know, bit of paper and another match and he lights a stove and then he looks back and the box is back exactly where it was. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing about it is that the box as a unit disappeared. It wasn't like the box disappeared and there was a pile of wood matches sitting there or the matches disappeared. Um, and there's a lot of components to this box. There was the box, the matches, the, you know, whatever chemicals were on the matches, but they disappeared as a unit, as his mm -hmm. concept, my box of matches. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you, mm. right, and that and that would apply. That applies to all of these cases and all of the objects in these cases, because mm -hmm. there's there isn't one example of half of an object disappearing, or you know something like you know somehow like the laces from the courses, right, too, yeah. right, and e even that, like as this relates back to the, uh, a concept that. Jordan Peterson used to talk about, um, you know, I haven't mentioned him talk about it recently, but especially in his, um, like the, the debate that he did with Sam Harris about um, perception, or the example that he gives is of perception. It's like, it's not like um, you have this, just this screen of consciousness and then all these objects are just, you know, beaming themselves at you and, and you see the objects. It's like, no, there is a, he, he brings this up in the context of like AI and trying to like, you know, train AI to see things and they found out the researchers involved in this that it was actually very difficult because when you when you're presented with like a visual field there's nothing inherent about any any of those lines or colors or shapes in that field to distinguish one object from the next the reason that we distinguish objects from each other is because of their meaning to us but because of their usefulness to us but if you were um, like if you were to just be 
like have no senses whatsoever for your entire life and then all of a sudden begin given vision it's like you wouldn't be able to make any sense of what you're looking at the reason that things make sense is because of our experience with them and because of the meaning that we've attached to those those things but if you if you were to just make like a pixel by pixel image like to nature um like well to to an unintelligent like unminded nature um if you can imagine such a thing mm-hmm. like all like a, a visual image is just a collection of like colored pixels like there there's nothing you need you need consciousness um a directed consciousness and an, uh, with attention in order to arrange like in order to see the whole of um you know some of those pixels and a uh, conceptual framework to place it in right Otherwise, it's just yeah. random pixels. Right. Um, you need a mind in order to conceive of what you're looking at. So, like, it was a good term you used for, you know, these are, like, whole conceptions of an object. And so that's how these objects behave. Um, if there wasn't some kind of mind involved, if this was just a random process, you'd, you would think that it would be more random um, because there's nothing inherent about that object to, to hold it together as an object. Mm-hmm. It's, just a, it's just a random collection of atoms, essentially. It's like... Um, when you have a like a you know a, a dead piece of wood outside in your yard, it's like there's there's nothing to distinguish that dead piece of wood from that dead piece of wood when you cut off like a, a few cubic inches of it. It's still just a dead piece of wood, um, but the 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 whole thing itself would disappear in a jot case. Mm-hmm. Um, it's your entire watch that disappears, not just you know one of the knobs or you know some of the gears or just like a random. Um, if you could take if you could imagine like a a random. Um, you know, collection of of atoms and molecules from it. You, you th- so you might just get dust or something, or some like some little pieces of it that are just barely recognizable as a watch. It's like no, the whole watch disappears and then comes back. Mm-hmm. So it disappears um, in the context of the conceptualization of that object. And um, this relates to the the like to many of the cases that where she argues that there seems to be a. Um, like an emotional motivation for for the phenomenon, mm-hmm. and this is something that Stephen Browdy, a, a philosopher and and a parapsychologist, is adamant about in his books. Is the is that it, um, it's the, one of the most neglected aspects of parapsychology is the actual motivation involved, um, the kind of the psychodynamics, mm-hmm. the the emotional importance and and meaning involved in in all of these in any case of of uh, of like some kind of paranormal event. Yeah, I think the only time that, that that's ever really considered is in poltergeist cases. Yeah. And they'll say, well, you know, usually it's aggression or anger unexpressed or... Yeah, usually it ends up being that. She talked about uh, uh, one famous case of... Uh, this was back when you had servants and bells to call the servants where the bells were going off all times of the day or night, even bells that had been disconnected from the wiring system. And the... As far as they could, they could tra- they traced it all back to a young 14-year-old girl, so adolescent, prime poltergeist instigation situation, who was very resentful of how much the bells were, were going off and, 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 you know, feeling overworked and angry about it. And so, but, uh, you know, that's the thing is that, that none of these cases to me, even even the simple ones about keys, somewhere along the way there was an emotional reason there was a motivation to make it happen mm-hmm. or have it happen or allow it to happen or open up the possibility of it happening. And, and, uh, 
I think they'd probably get a lot further along if you would start looking at that and looking at the fact. I mean, I think the whole thing is that they, they want to keep it very scientific. So you want to keep the emotion, you want to keep the idea that, that other than it being an, an interesting event, that there could be a, a, a mental influence on the whole thing. I mean, that, that would just hoop the whole causality thing <laughs> right up the, right out of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe, um, maybe, uh, I want to read a, a couple more things because we like, really, we haven't talked about much in the last chapter, which is the most interesting oh, yeah. part. Um, but <laughs> theory of everything. <laughs> yeah. So maybe just, um, well, like I said, she, so she talks about unconscious volition. She brings that into it. So that's actually really relevant to the things we've been talking about the show in recent months, like, uh, James Carpenter's work and, um, and then Bernardo Castrop. um, and of course, you know, Whitehead and Griffin and those guys. But then she gets to, to this, which, well, I just got to say, like, um, whether her theories are correct or not, she, like, she's really, she's a, how do I describe it? A very um, unique and adventurous thinker. Like, um, the, <laughs> you'll, you'll see that when I, when I read some of these things. Um, where, where am I going with this? Yeah. So uh, this is under the section, The Forces of Law and Order. Probability laws and the causality directive imply a lawmaker. This thought trails with it visions of commandments inscribed on tablets and bearded prophets. Um, commandments inscribed on bearded prophets? Well, no, I don't recommend that. Um, entirely in the realm of speculation, I see probability as built into the cosmos rather than, Im rather than imposed on it. And, ca and the causality directive belongs some way down the hierarchy of mind layers that is soon to be proposed. It will come as no surprise that I am leading up to positing an all-embracing cosmic mind as fundamental. And furthermore, I am prepared to assert that all reality, universe existence, past and future potentialities, everything, everywhere, is embraced within the cosmic mind, which has no beginning or end. If something has a beginning, something must have preceded it, and it ha if it has an end, something must come after it. Given that there is something, even if that something is an illusion, whatever that would mean, something cannot become nothing. There can be no such thing as nothing. I'd roughly agree with that. <laughs> and then she gets to this, which is, I, I, I kind of, uh, my eyes kind of opened a bit wider than usual when I read this because I just read uh, Bernardo Castrop and we just talked about him um, on the show um, when I read this, when I happened to read this. So then she has a section titled Dissociation. If our little selves are contained within the cosmic mind, what is our position and status? The obvious relationship is that of a very small cell in a very large brain, or perhaps a smaller, atomic-sized cell fragment of a cell. We could continue down what appears to be a scale of the, of the infinitely small, so small that relationship is hardly the word uh, or the concept. Though it is a frankly anthropomorphic model, and if we were talking about minds, is that, not is that not inevitable? I am proposing a hierarchy of minds, our own creator, author, dreamer, maker, having the same sort of position in relation to the cosmic mind as our planet has to the center of our universe, peripheral rather than at the core. We are, of course, talking at this point about a kind of dissociation. Uh, the cosmic mind, according to the thesis, while having the potential to be fully integrated, is always dissociated to some degree. The dissociated personalities of the first order may or may not be further dissociated, and so on down to the level of human personalities. 
and I'd say perhaps further down to the level of like atoms even. Mm-hmm. Um, as we have seen, humans can also be dissociated, but only when in a pathological state. And a similar principle may hold for entities higher up the pyramid than ourselves, but low enough down to be our maker and progenitor. It is the entities with a problem that dissociate. So it should come as no surprise that, according to the thesis, our world, including the universe in which it appears to be set, is the dream drama of a maker with problems. (laughs) We are made in his image. Um, Skipping a bit. Though an undermined in the larger scheme, he is, that is our, you know, our our maker, uh, in relation to us, his altars, an overmind, more of a queen bee than a pearl, a source of honey but with a sting more of a dark well than a source of light. Rather than attaching too humanoid a label to, that, to an entity that, based on the evidence all around us, must, uh, may be ruthlessly in control or a regretful witness of unforeseen consequences arising from primordial decisions, he will continue to be called neutrally the maker, author, generator, and participant in our world, and we are his altars, the stuff his dreams are made of. We are part puppets, part actors, part characters in a fiction, Part autonomous creatures. Um, yeah, how's yeah. that? How's, <laughs> how's that for a thesis? <laughs> well, it's it doesn't go without precedent. I mean, that's that's the Hindu view of Brahman mm-hmm. that uh, Brahma has fallen asleep and is is dreaming, and we are the Maya, the dream of of. Mm-hmm. Uh, but who is the dreamer? Who is the dreamer? <laughs> yes. Right. But you know, it's 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 certainly got some merit. I mean, I don't you know. Looking around, you would say, "Yeah, pathological, um, pretty sweeping stuff." Yeah. Um, well, maybe one more quote. Oh, please. On the on the cosmic mind thing. So this is under the heading uh, "Cosmic Justice?" Question uh, mark. These speculations on time, space, and elsewhere lead us back to the all-embracing cosmic mind in which everything that ever has been or will be exists. The infinite possibilities lighting up in sequences in the same way that a musical work, though complete has to be experienced note by note. I find that I have to cling to the idea... Oh, well, she's just getting into... Um, uh, I'll skip that bit, actually. So, um, we are all the, the maker's creatures, with many of his unfortunate character traits, but we have a sense of influences more benign at some level that transcend the values written into the laws of nature. This must be an awareness of higher levels in the hierarchies of the cosmic mind. So the ferocity and ruthlessness built into the creatures of the maker from white cells, microbes, and viruses upwards are modified by altruism, sympathy for our prey, and, reg- and regret at our own predatory role in the, cosmi- in, in the natural order. Assuming that these higher influences predominate in the cosmic mind, we have to ask, among other unanswerable questions, if some great purpose is served by the existence of less benign entities, that are prepared to, per- to precipitate dream dramas that cause distress and suffering to their participants. Skipping a bit. The dreadful truth is that action, to be interesting, brings with it tension and trouble, and it is difficult for us to envisage how things could be different. Skipping a bit. Some viewers might even call for our maker to be struck off the role of world makers, though some sophisticated and liberal voices might defend the necessity of such, uh, for such disturbing worlds to exist, and that we have a part to play, even a necessary role, in the wider scheme of things. Skipping. We may also have a therapeutic role, 
We must bear in mind that the sorrows of our world are shared by our Maker, who in his states of partial awareness and insight may be resolving his conflict. Conflicts. So essentially, we are like the the like the the dis, the disturbed pathological alters of mm-hmm. you know a being with issues with with <laughs> issues. Yeah, with serious dissociative <laughs> issues. And so so our working out the problems are actually working out the problems of right. this higher overmind yeah, that I've, is I've, encompassing us. I found that really a really interesting idea because what are we all striving for theoretically, but to make ourselves whole mm-hmm. and in creating our own wholeness, adding to the wholeness of however mm-hmm. high up the ladder you want to go. Mm-hmm. And then maybe one last bit. There remains among other unfathomable mysteries, the question of why the cosmic mind, which could be entirely integrated and exist in one eternal state of total perfection, should be always in a state of dissociation. As we have seen, activity imports stress, so why should the cosmic mind choose to be permanently stressed? And um, I think uh, I don't think she actually answers that, but uh, but I think it's a question to uh, well, that's the question, right? And so so that's why I said she's kind of got a a big scope in her explanation for disappearing objects. <laughs> That's a long way from lost keys. <laughs> yeah, because these are really, she, she's basically, she's managed to, uh, well, I think, didn't she writ, write another book? Um, it's not listed in here, but I, th- I had the impression that maybe, no, I think it was a different person. No, she wrote one in 216. Yeah, but. but I can't uh, remember the title of it. Um, yeah, she did. Um, with, uh, with Ian Stevenson, the, the, um, reincarnation research guy and another guy, a world in a grain of sand. That's the, I can't remember who, who said that. It's a famous quote, some poet or something. Walt Whitman. Was it? Yeah. Okay. And uh, what she's essentially done, like, so the jot has been her grain of sand and she's found the universe in it. Um, you know, the, 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 the widest and gr- grandest mysteries of the cosmos she's found in, uh, you know, disappearing keys, which is, I, I mean, it's quite a feat. It's, it's very poetic. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> But so, so in the process, she's dealing with, you know, the, the question of evil, you know, the existence of evil in the world and, uh, mm-hmm. and just, uh, you know, basic philosophical questions on the nature of reality. So the nature of being and existence and existentialism. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's kind of, it's all implicated in there. Um, you look, well, and that would be the case if we live in a, a, a coherent, like ordered cosmos, is that, um, um, you know, any one bit will explain, will, will, contribute to the interpretation of all other bits because they're all part of a unified whole um, on some level. So, um, so it's a, a valid, uh, valid direction to go in, I think. Um, did you want to say something? No? Okay, well, um, I just wanted to bring up a couple um, maybe like kind of connections for the, the stuff that she was writing. Like, um, so this, like the idea of dis- dissociation, this is um, like in the last show that we did when we talked about Castrop's book, um, I mentioned that, um, um, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give the, like the picture that's forming for me now. Like the, I think that like one of the problems of the scientific worldview, like the materialist worldview, is to, um, to look at kind of the, like basically the, the hardcore physicists see um, subatomic particles and processes as the the ultimate bits of of the universe, the other ultimate bits of reality. Everything can be explained in terms of those you know quarks and electrons and 
and gluons and all those things. And so, so everything else kind of is less of lesser relevance and importance than those physical bits. So it's like the, the, the trillions and trillions to the nth degree of little things. That's all there is to reality. Right. And everything beyond everything above that can be built from whatever's going on at that level. Right. And, um, the problem that like the problem that Castrop has with, uh, materialists or one of the problems is that, um, that, uh, well, not with not necessarily with materialists, but with materialists and with panpsychists. Like so, so the people that would say that there are um, that all of those little bits are conscious, and that explains consciousness. Um, like like he argues in, in in modern philosophy, one of the problems with that is well, what is the principle that explains why combinations of those like conscious bits have their own consciousness? Mm -hmm. Like so, why aren't we just a collection of trillions of conscious atoms, why do we seem to have our own consciousness that unifies all those things? That seems to be an additional principle on top of that. Well, so it seems like to me that the, the, a better explanation is to combine like the two views. You have like the, the little, all the little bits that, uh, that combine in, in shapes and to, to, to become, you know, bigger macro objects. But you also have like the, the cosmic mind the 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 unified whole of the cosmos that dissociates to to ever smaller bits, mm -hmm. and so um, so you have to look at it from two directions as opposed to just one. We almost wonder if there isn't some sort of tacit agreement to work together, mm -hmm. that that the uh, the larger consciousness looking to have an experience because that's what the universe is about is experiences and and drawing experiences from it would have an agreement with these lesser consciousnesses that wish to experience a larger mm -hmm. uh, existence, so to speak. And so that there's this interplay, this agreement that, okay, I will guide and inform and, you know, uh, allow for you smaller consciousness to have this larger experience and in hopes that you will learn whatever it is that some liver cell needs mm -hmm. to learn, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, that always seemed to make sense to me that, that there's, there's this ever striving upward for more and more complexity from, from, I mean, as far as right now, I would think even electron has some sort of consciousness and some sort of striving. Mm -hmm. So when presented with an opportunity by a molecule to be something, part of something, why greater. not, mm -hmm. you know, so there's this, this this drive for affiliation and and unification but not in the idea of losing what you've had before mm -hmm. and um yeah so it seems to me that that that, uh, that like marriage that um that handshake that between like the all the the little bits and all the overarching bits is is mm -hmm. just the way the universe the universe is structured mm -hmm. we live in a in a universe where that is the way things are that's mm -hmm. the, way, the way beings are is that like uh, a being is a uh, is like a, a combination in some sense of a bunch of smaller beings and it is an atom in some larger being right. its consciousness is like a dissociated altar of some larger consciousness mm -hmm. and um one of the things i liked about barrington's take on this is that she um she acknowledges that um that kind of excluded ground between the ultimate and humanity like uh, so i've i've said this on on the show several times before is it it seems that that's the that's the the taboo area um from not only from materialists but from the the kind of uh you know 
consciousness oriented people who are you know not materialists mm-hmm. is that okay so we have well and it's it's the same thing even with in some religious communities some christian communities that see like essentially humanity as the apex of god's creation and then above that there's god mm-hmm. um, throwing a few angels along the way yeah but maybe but maybe even not <laughs> like some some like cr- christian traditions of even like don't even like really consider angels as real things mm-hmm. but so there's this but but she she at least acknowledges those possibilities as like higher um, like dissociations within dissociations and like a, a level of consciousness between us and the the cosmic mind the mm-hmm. ultimate that um, that there so the 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 picture up there the landscape might be a lot more complex than um, than we can even imagine that there's there's a lot going on up there that mm-hmm. uh, that might need to be taken into account if we want a full a full account of um, and description of reality and, and our place within it. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyways, uh, I think we gave a good enough introduction to this book. So, yeah, if you're interested in in uh, parapsychology and uh, some far out speculations on the nature of reality, then uh, yeah, I recommend checking it out because yeah. it's actually pretty. Show the book again. Pretty, uh, it's a pretty entertaining book. So it, yeah, it's, there you it's go. It's short. It is very entertaining, and uh, the way she goes from the sand to the universe is is quite something. Yeah. It's very charming. <laughs> All right. So, um, yeah, thanks for tuning in, everyone, and uh, we'll see you later.